Media Masters with Paul Blanchard. Welcome to Media Masters, a series of one-to-one interviews with people at the top of the media game. Today I'm joined by Emily Wilson, editor of New Scientist. After starting her career at the Bristol Evening Post, she worked for the Daily Mirror and then the Daily Mail before joining The Guardian as health editor in 1999. Over the next 14 years, Emily took on a number of roles, including editorships at G1 magazine and their UK website and managing their Australian operation before being appointed assistant editor of the UK edition in 2016. Appointed editor of New Scientist in January 2018, she's the first woman to hold the post in the title's 62-year history. Emily, thank you for joining me. Hi. What's that like then? 62 years of men, now you? Uh, Obviously, I wasn't there for the 62 years of men. Um, It it is a change. I I think that... All the first woman dot dot dot. I, th- I do think it all matters. It does. So soon it will be the first robot editor and the first robot CEO. But for now, it's about women and minor other kinds of minorities. So well, I have to declare an interest here that New Scientist is my favourite magazine. I've been reading it for years, and I was hugely inspired by your appointment. Where are you going to take the magazine? And I ask that as a as an actual reader. I would like to take it to more, I know this is a sort of a bit of a trite answer, but I would like it to take it out to more readers in the world. I think that anyone anywhere in the world who cares about science, the environment and technology and speaks English is a potential new scientist reader. And I've also observed from my own family that people from 10 to perhaps younger to 70 and much older get loads out of this magazine because it's an uh, a magazine about ideas, innovation, discovery, and it, it speaks to some something in loads of people. And so, yeah, I want to get it to more people. Do you see yourself as a bit of a, a science advocate as well? Because there seems to be a bit of an anti-science movement these days, particularly, say, with climate change, where people almost willfully turn away from the evidence. No, not really, because I think that... Um, Science advocacy is um, just sounds really boring, and and also it just sounds like you know science education, science advocacy, science policy. You just want to kill yourself. So no, I think that science and technology are more central now to the lives of everyone on the planet than they ever have been in terms of how it impacts on their daily life, be it through you know through medicine or through environmental pressures, or through kind of, you know, exponentially developing technologies. So a great time to take over the title then. Great time to take over the title. But secondly, given that as a species we've, I hope we can all agree, made a bit of a mess of our house, I think that science and technology are at the heart of the future of our species as well because we need them to get us out of this fix. So I'm interested in the role science plays now and how it's going to hopefully help us get to a bright future rather than advocacy per se because I'm not interested in promoting the ideas of some kind of science establishment or some kind of science body or people because they, I'm quite wary of people thinking, well, science thinks this, therefore everyone should think that too, and kind of people are idiots if they don't believe this group of scientists. So, no, I don't see advocacy as part of our role. So who are your readership then? Because in a sense you're preaching to the converted, aren't you? I imagine I'm not your typical new scientist reader because I'm just a normal Joe, whereas I imagine they're all boffins, are they, in white coats? I mean, I suppose that's the point we're not preaching. We're reporting on 
um, stuff that's happening in science and technology and stuff that's happening to the planet in, in as evidence-based way as we possibly can in order to delight and inform, hopefully at, all at once, our readers. And our readers are people who really want to find out what's happening in the world and they want to hear about the discoveries and the findings that are out there. Uh, there's a lot of stuff about hope um, wrapped up in that, but it's also about kind of picking apart the truth from the kind of wash of information. And and, uh, and uh, science can't tell you everything because not everything has been, you know, put on trial and evidence in a, in a scientific way. But it, it's not a bad start for trying to work out what's really going on. So, And that, for me, is the joy of the scientific method, really, is that, you know, science doesn't have all the answers and it delights in that uncertainty. You know, we don't know what makes up 95% of the universe and your magazine celebrates that and, and explores yeah. what the options are. That's, that's exciting. Every week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, every week. We do. We do. Um yeah, so so part of the stuff we're looking at is is you know sort of black holes, white holes, and that end of it. Uh, part of it is uh, what's really going on with the with with our biosphere. Part of it is um, medical advances, the tech. I mean, there's just so much to go at. So when people interest, ask, you know, why are you into science? It's like, well, I mean, how could you not be? Well, I agree yeah. with you. I'm, a, I'm, I'm hugely into it. Uh, do you have a scientific background yourself? Because uh, reading the intros, you heard me say it was very kind of guardian-y. I did a degree in chemistry. That's pretty science um, Yeah, but I never worked in science. A lot of my colleagues have got sort of 15 PhDs and... But lots were you always lots an of... amateur science? Like, did you read a lot of popular science books like I do? I did. And then I sort of left science, became a journalist, went to sort of, you know, general news. But time, time again, the sort of science sort of came and found me. At one point, Alan Rusbridger, then editor of The Guardian, asked me to set up a science section, which we called Life. Very sadly dead, dead now. <laughs> life um, is life dead. Life is dead. Yeah. Um, I remember life, actually. Yeah, and then I've always been very interested in environmental issues. My last, so it's come to me time and time again. And then when this role came up, I leapt at it, knowing it was that the dream this role. was, yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah. Did you always want to be a journalist? Because I mean, a degree in chemistry is not normally the first start to something. No, in no. When I finished my degree, I was sort of completely lost, and I thought, you know, I'm 21. You know, my whole life's behind me. <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do. My life's dribbling away, and everybody else is, now. you know. I'm already. I'm thinking know, that now as you say I know, that. I know. And I had absolutely no idea. And at some point, I, I, I definitely went to, I didn't want to be in the lab. And I, did, I think there would be many labs around the world glad not to have me as a sort of little fire starter in the corner. But um, I, I kind of narrowed it down to law or journalism. And then when I sort of got into both at sort of trainee level, I knew immediately that I wanted, I wanted journalism. I wanted the money off role wrote, you know. So I went and did that. And then I've been, and I'm so lucky to have found a vacation because it's, Life's much richer if you can find work that really speaks to you on lots of different levels. And when you you started on the first rung on the ladder of mm. journalism, did you, um, you know, how ambitious were you? Did you want to be editor and did you want to be... I mean, like, for example, I, I did sort of 12, 13 years in politics and even when yeah. I was elected to local council, I thought, right, this 10 Downing Street, 20 years from now, you know, this is the... No, oh, I wasn't that like that. Happen. I wasn't like that at all. I was... Um, I sort of, for my 20s, I, I was sort of a very... 
loyal sort of foot soldier in every job I did. I wasn't very sort of, I wasn't sort of politicised. I didn't know anything about feminism or anything like that. When I worked for the Mail, I could see that there was stuff on the comment pages in the features pages that might sort of not aligned with me sort of phys- um, politically. That's what you want but in I just the comment saw, pages, isn't it? You want, yeah, but, you want but a challenge. also there was stuff that went on there that, But I just thought, well, I'm just a news reporter and I'm going to do my best as a news reporter. And that's what... So my ambitions are always, you know, I want a staff job or I want a staff job in Fleet Street and then I want a staff job there or I don't, you know, so it was very... So it was was whatever rung of the ladder you're on, you wanted the next rung. Yeah, exactly. I wanted to do well, you know, like lots of people, I had imposter syndrome, so I couldn't really believe... Still got it now. I was a staff reporter in Fleet Street. I couldn't... I just couldn't believe it, so... Um, I can't believe that I'm sitting here presenting the 78th most successful media podcast on yeah. iTunes. But life has knocked imposter syndrome out of me now. <laughs> has it? Yeah. Is that because you... I think it's only because you're so very young that you still feel it. I think that it's just hard yards, age, parenting, all of those things. And also just the evidence on the ground. You know, after a while, if you, you, you know, see haven't... busking it. Yeah. It, it also, if you've, if you've sort of done real jobs and it didn't all turn to shit and you know fireball didn't um erupt from the newsroom then you know so it's it's eventually you do get a feel for what you can add it does pass if you do indeed suffer which i don't know (laughs) when you went to the guardian then you started Mm. as health editor I went as a sort of most junior person in the features department and my job was to edit the four health pages a week. So I wasn't in the newsroom and I'd just come from being a, a, news report, a medical news reporter at the Mail. Yeah, and I sort of arrived there in a very kind of Guardian-steeped culture as a sort of total Daily Mail ingenue slash idiot who had no idea of, you know, the things I would say that would go down like a bucket of cold sick at The Guardian. But did you feel quite at home, though, amongst the, uh, the the Guardian staffers? I definitely... There was a whole... There was a time when about, I can't remember, six to nine people left the mail, a little sort of little refugee boat full of people, and all went to The Guardian and made a good home for there for many years, and many are still there. And someone did once stand up in conference and, go, you know, give a little speech about, I think it's disgusting that you know, Daily Mail employees will come work here. But we were all career journalists and, you know, we had chosen to go to The Guardian and, anyway, we all made our contribution. So, but eventually I became very at home and then obviously I spent 100 years there. So by the end, I was sort of part of the <laughs> part of the furniture. Well, you don't get to skip to the end so quickly. Yes. We, we have got an hour. Yes, OK. So, so what came after health then? You're editing the four pages. What I was the next of, I sort of made my way up through the features department and at some point I went and did the science section downstairs in the newsroom and that was sort of a different day where, all, you know, there was still sort of at the time, you know, reporters sitting around in hats reading novels and um, big piles of paper. And um, so, yeah, so we did our science section, employed some really cool science journalists some some of them still there some of them out in the world being dazzling and then eventually I became you know assistant features editor deputy features editor features editor which is G2 editor there and then I went downstairs and edited G1 which is the big it was then big flappy news bit the only way I was able to make that progress was because after I'd had babies I could have I could have disappeared because I didn't want to work full-time when I had a baby and also I'd made a weird decision to move to the country just like just to throw impediments in my way and the Guardian let me job share 
And I went through several years then of job shares. And then uh, finally, uh, another woman and I went for a job share as features editor. And that was the first sort of headed department job share the Guardian had had. Quite trailblazing um, at the time. I mean, now it's it, yeah, reasonably no, standard. It, it, it was. It's cutting it was edge at the time. incredibly bold of them to have done it, yeah. yeah. And then later, and then, I, and then I went off and did something else. And then later, the two of us put together an ob- another job share to be, I think our title was Network Editor of the website. Um, and again, we did it together. So, And if it wasn't for all of that, I definitely wouldn't have had the experience and the confidence that I have to come and do something like the job I do now. And then you moved into management, did you not? Well, if you're a head of department, that is quite a lot of management because you, you have to run your own department as well as be responsible for the content. So, so an editor-manager? All senior journalists if they have any direct reports are managers as well as content providers content providers. uh yeah but so, when you went to australia for example yeah. that, that was very much as the, the the ceo of the australian operation was it not no i was the editor so um guardian australia is a company that is wholly owned by the global guardian um but on the ground there's a an MD who kind of runs the commercial side and then an editor or editor-in-chief, whatever you want to call it, who runs the editorial side. And they work really closely to run the company. And so there was that sort of exec bit to it. But I was also responsible for all of the content and also the team and all that management stuff. So inevitably, yeah. So inevitably, if you are an editor, there's a huge amount of management that goes with it because it's not something you can ask. You can't ask someone else to manage Mm. your own team. And if you do do that, it tends to end in tears. I remember when Chris Blackhurst was sitting in that chair about three years ago. One of the first editors we ever got on. I've known Chris for years. And I said, you know, he he always wanted to be editor. And I said, you enjoyed it. And he went, no, it was hell. He said it was all HR, legal. It is, yeah. He said it was like wading through treacle. It's hard. It wasn't quite what he thought it would be. That the reality of being an editor wasn't (laughs) as good as he thought. No, it is. is, There are good bits where you're sitting around... um, you know, discussing a cover story or you're in ideas meetings and everyone, this might not be a good bit for everyone. Yesterday, I thought it was the geekiest conversation I've been in so far at New Scientist where everyone was discussing it's the 150th anniversary of the periodic table next year and people talking about, but would it be the same on Mars? Answer, no. Uh, but so there's that's the best bits. But when you're in editor, inevitably, if you want to grow and change and all that stuff which you have to be responsible for it involves people involves management involves hr involves money resourcing all the rest of it so anyone going into being an editor thinking they're just going to sit around and perfect their covers is in for a nasty shock so tell us about the move to australia then how long were you you there for as as i've now learned as editor so there was a um, reshuffling of the top brass uh, around the Guardian. Australia became open and I uh, bid, bad, bade, begged, all of those things to do it. You put and yourself forward. I put myself forward. <laughs> um, and instantly knew I would love to do it. And I love Australia. Went out. Well, I'd never been. They're just like British people, just less miserable. That's my view. I loved every, I loved everything there. How long um, are you there for? So two, just over two years. Wow. So went out with the family. Is this Sydney? And yeah, based yeah. in Sydney, uh, but we not we now. The Guardian have um, them. Te- they have teams in Sydney, Melbourne, 
Canberra, and then, you know, other people dotted around the country and Brisbane and places. I love Australia. Um, We've got several clients there, so I get to go every so often. I just love it. So I had to learn all about Australia. I had to learn... And was that a deliberate... What was the motivation, if you don't mind me asking? Was adventure. It just a, yeah, a sense of adventure. Adventure. Wow. Nothing else. It well, was that's just the most pure... noble of all. Is it easy to... Yeah, well, what's the alternative? Um, Is it to climb the uh, career ladder? Though it was just pure, brilliant adventure. And it was... Um, there was a huge learning in that... Um, it's digital only there, obviously. Yeah. Um, it, the huge learnings is that I, I had to. There's obviously lots of Australians on the team, and then and also we grew the team with lots of Australians. But presumably it's um, read there. Then if if you have a team, it's I mean, just I read filling this. It's filling a really big hole in the market there Incredible. because the way the market went there, there's really excellent um, brands. But they made a decision to, when they went online, to kind of be a bit trashy. And people were crying out for sort of serious, yeah. I guess you say, broadsheet-style digital journalism. That was also really digital. So, yeah, it was fantastic. It's, I mean, it, you know, it's a fantastic experience to be producing stuff that's really wanted um, by an audience. And, and, and it was um, growing as well and continues to grow um, and become more successful. So that's fantastic. Was that the kind of first big all-encompassing job in terms of you were the editor? or It was the most on my own job as an editor because although I'd done jobs where I was probably responsible you know, for that many people, there is much more, you know, the representative of the Guardian's brand out there. And while everyone slept in the UK, we had a lot of responsibility about, well, firstly, the Australian content, everything we did in the Australian day, but also while London slept, we were running the website in its totality. So any big story... Globally, some kind of huge, horrific attack somewhere, anything like that, we would, you know, we would just say to the reporters, never mind about, you know, the kangaroo or whatever else they were doing. Come the wallaby. That's unfair because we would very rarely do wallaby or kangaroo stories, so I'm being unfair to myself. But we would yank everyone over to a big global effort. So there were two pieces of the job. One was Australia and one was um, being part of the Guardian's 24-hour news machine, uh, which was really exciting too. So I'm used to newsrooms where in overnights there's a couple of staffers that are basically snoozing in a London newsroom. I I did not know that the Guardian's overnight website, the the Guardian.co.uk, was run from Australia. No, completely. That's incredible. And also there's a team, and I don't know how big they are now, but when I was there we had six or seven on, in Australia we called it the foreign desk, but really it's the... It's the UK desk in Australia. One man's enclave is another man's exclave. Yeah, and plus that team, that foreign desk team, had access to the Australian resources. So if anything big happened in the world, by the time America or the UK, Europe woke up... You were on it already and had been on it for ages. Our website was brilliant. That's amazing. And I, I would expect that they would keep that because it's a very, very powerful weapon in their arsenal. This is why I think the internet is witchcraft. <laughs> all this, all these silicon chips and yeah. such. It's all a waste of time. Uh, so what, what came next then? Because, uh, you know, you were, were you there for about two years? I was there for about two years. I came back and when I came back, I did a job centering, which is, I guess, how new scientists found me, centering around science and uh, the environment and running that reporting for The Guardian. And then, um, which was fantastic and brilliant. And then I got a call about New Scientists. 
And when the call came through yeah. then, you, you knew that job was for you. I did know it. I knew it long before the people who were eventually going to give it to me knew it. I was absolutely certain immediately that it was for me. <laughs> Why? I just knew that it was a perfect fit of... Oh, God, this probably sounds bad, but I, it was a perfect fit of an organisation that could really do with me and a job that I could really do with as well. It was just, I had all the right experience and also it had what I wanted in terms of opportunity. So I felt it was good for them and good for me in equal measure. So it's very rare that you can feel like that and feel so strongly about a new job. I mean, the magazine's got, what, about 120,000 in print and, and obviously many millions online. More like 5 million online, yeah. That, that is absolutely incredible, the numbers. It is, yes, I, I mean, I think it's much lower than it ought to be because it's such a, such an important subject and such an important area so for me it feels like it should be much more <laughs> what, what is the motivation for um, for people buying it is, is there a mixture of motivations i buy it because it, it explains topics in greater detail but also without dumbing down the language in a, but also in a way that i can understand um, it's bought by a wide range of people. So some people want to keep up to... T- people are all interested in different things. So you get your physics junkies and, you know, people who really want to drill down in different areas in a way you, would, you wouldn't get from science journalism in the main... in You know, in the newspaper. But you also get people who just want to be delighted with the latest news, the latest discoveries... Um, and, you know, and then you'll get a few people who love to read it to find an error so they can write to us and, um, uh, you know, who are kind of part of a sort of, you know, who who really feel part of the brand and what it does. What, so. by correcting you? Those people need to be beaten, no, not no, responded to. No, I disagree. No, I, I was trying to say that there's some, you know, like there are people who just kind of flick sometimes and there are people who read it every week um, and... I don't really see why everyone doesn't read it. And I I guess people, some some people are put off by the word science. It sort of sounds boring. Um, That's why I buy it. And it's scary. Genuinely my, it's genuinely my favourite magazine. Yeah. I've never said that Good. before to, on any other podcast because I mean it. But I hate the term news gathering, but how yeah. do you actually get your news? How do you, do you have like close relationships with the universities, the research teams? You know, you, you do get a lot of global exclusives. How, yeah, do, you, how so, do you get them? So our small but hardy team of reporters um, have good contacts and that's one big thing I just just think about kind of big exclusives we've had in the past couple of years you know the first um, three parent baby deep mind getting hold of all that NHS patient data another new scientist story um, menopause being reversed all those big things they come from a mixture of contacts, reporters just knowing lots of people and having those conversations, FEO, FOI, FEO, FOI, and sometimes scouring the literature that no one else is scouring. When you said um, FEO, I just nodded as if you like, But honestly, that's my imposter syndrome now. F- oh, I'll just oh, nod yeah. There. No. <laughs> uh, yeah, and sometimes just scouring the scientific literature in the way that others aren't. So, so not, not to demean the, yeah. the job in a sense, but yeah. it, it's it's no different from any other type of journalism that you've just got to work hard, work your contacts, keep your ear to the ground, keep your eyes and ears open. It is exactly the same as every other form of journalism. You can do it really badly or you can do it really well and you can you can do your scouring and your story finding badly or well and then you can do your reporting on it badly or well. It's, it's exactly the same 
set of tools. Do you have a reader in mind when, you, when you're when actually writing the copy? So, for example, a local newspaper, you, all you have to say is, yeah. the local library burnt down to the ground yesterday and, you know, the unemployed man, 22, has been arrested. You know, it's yeah. very factual. But on, on this, it's not... Do you have a, an, do you feel you've got a duty to explain or...? Because um, well, I, I don't know a lot of things. I, I want an explainer box. Yeah, so... I, and I, I'm sure it's something we can improve on and do better and if you say we should have explainer boxes maybe we should um you could call them blanchard the, boxes there's a lot of knowledge in the staff so there's you know apart from me everyone's got well, anyway, they, they all know a lot and we have people who really know about particle physics and people who really know about molecular biology um and so that helps us with the sifting process it helps us work out what is just nonsense from what is really a step forward or what is just publicity by a certain laboratory in terms of where we point it at how can you ever know if you if you really understand something well that helps you explain it well and so hopefully any reasonably scientifically literate or reasonably curious person should be able to read our mag and enjoy it i hope um there's also a lot of inbuilt knowledge in in the team about what we've done before and how the readers have reacted and we can also see online what people really enjoy and what they will pay to read and whether they stay with us having understood the level at which we're pitching it. The, the magazine's owner, Sir Bernard Gray, said that he wanted your editorship to kind of reach out to new, younger, more diverse audiences. Were you given any other kind of to-do lists and how are you going about doing that? Well, we're doing we're, the work we're doing is at different levels, so... There's a sort of shop front level at which you can tackle diversity. And that is if you have a magazine and every human being pictured in it is a white middle-aged man, that sends a certain message to the reader. So we try not to do that and to think about... To reflect being, the diversity of your actual readership. Yeah, and the readership we would like to have. So we try and make it look like a place where many people are welcome. And that's that's a sort of, I guess, the most superficial level, but important nonetheless. Very much so. And sort of next level down, there are who who you go to. So, for example, in I don't know when this podcast will go out, but in this week's issue, which is uh, dated the eighth of September, the the two interviews that happen to be in here today, one is with a black female surgeon who's become a major activist on the vaginal mesh story, which is a big kind of international story. And the second big interview is with um, a complete sci-fi genius um, who's China's kind of top sci-fi author. I'm going to say his name wrongly now, but I think it's Lu Cixin. But apologies to Mandarin speakers. I'm nodding again. He is the author of something called The Three-Body Problem. It's actually a trilogy about an alien invasion. And it's extraordinary stuff. And anyway, so those are the two interviews. And so you can make changes with who you go and speak to and who you give a platform for. Um, and, And that can come down to sort of individual stories and trying to encourage kind of in a science story, you are a bit dependent on who did the science. But then who you go to for secondary comment is also a thing. So all of that is a thing. Underneath all that, you have to have a more diverse staff. So we're working on a bunch of initiatives around that. But obviously, every time we hire, we think very deeply about these issues. So 
and the first female editor of New Scientist is obviously a, a fantastic step in the right direction, Which given is, that it's the top uh, job. Exactly. Bernard is putting his money where his mouth is, yeah. Is that the right phrase? But yes, he is. Yeah, he takes this really seriously. So you mentioned there, uh, said there's a, a physics story, then clearly you rely on the physics experts to decide whether it is a story. Yeah. But then after that, do you decide how are you going to write it in terms of the language? Because you don't want to alienate non-physicists. Are you the kind of uh, filter that it has to be written in a way that you can understand it? Because uh, Stephen Hawking, for example, in his book, A Brief History of Time, his editor told him that with every single additional equation he put in, he'd halve the readership. Yeah. And one of the things I like about New Scientist is it, it doesn't seem to get into so much detail that it alienates me, but it, it does explain it in the detail needed Um, everyone is alive to the issue of are we getting it right in terms of where we're pitching it so you do that well well that's what that's what journalism is isn't it it's like taking super complicated stuff and trying to package it up in a way that's not stupid that isn't sort of gutted of all substance and um and 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 which really communicates something and yet doesn't put loads of readers off I'm sure there are days we get it right, days we get it wrong. Everyone takes part. We do, in terms of the accuracy, you need people who really understand the stuff and who really contribute. Um, But we also have superb editors and sub-editors who are watching for that kind of thing. And so, so I don't know whether we get it right or wrong every day, but that's something we all work towards. What's a typical week for you? What do you actually do? What I do is there's... It's very unlike newspapers where it's like the lot of daily. Um, it's less like that. Stuff goes up on the website daily. It's a digital first news operation. But in terms of the magazine, they're being produced sort of, you know, three weeks out, two weeks out, one week out. So there's all kinds of um, production marks that must be hit culminating on Tuesday where we must actually send the pages to the factory uh, or off stone it as they won't call it come back in the yeah. day. and then and then when all the pages have gone there's a sort of Wednesday which is a kind of pulling together day and a lot of the ideas meetings um, and then it all the kind of flow of pages begins um, and then a lot of meetings will be around general ideas there's actually a physics meeting on a Wednesday. I'd love to. Go um, to <laughs> and they mean, when they say physics, they, we, um, it's sort of physics in its broader sense. So that counts sort of, sort of tech and chemistry and space. So there is an actual <laughs> physics meeting. Um, so there are the ideas, yeah, so there's ideas generating meetings and there's meetings about which of those ideas we should do and how we should do them. Um, there are meetings about what should go in different issues, uh, what should go on the cover. There's loads of meetings around the artwork on the cover. I think that New Scientist has the most beautiful covers of any magazine on the planet. I agree. And I've always thought that. I've always thought um, that too. And uh, so there are meetings with the brilliant art team about what... This is the idea. This is what we think the cover story should be. But how do we communicate that? Not just in pictures, but in words and... So kind of words and art have to work really closely to... And and this is the bit that I've never done before and I'm just a learner, which is how to do covers brilliantly. Because Because as Bernard, my my, um, boss and owner, would say, is non-trivial. Working out how to do a cover is non-trivial. Non-trivial. Now, New Scientist is great at debunking digital myths too, like using Facebook makes racist attacks more likely. I remember reading that in a recent piece. Do, Do you think there's a lot of misinformation around in science today and do you you see yourself as having some role in tackling that 
it's not that we sort of see ourselves as having a role, but we do do quite a lot of it just because people come in enraged by what they're reading in the news and how wrong it is. So, and it, and it, and it, and that it, it makes for good journalism if you get people to, if people are being hyperbolic there or inaccurate here. And so, yeah, we do see it as part of our role to try and put the record straight as much as we can. Um, and I like it when we put the record straight and it goes against, um, if it ends up slaughtering a sacred cow that I myself have. I like that. I liked it when I read an analysis piece in the mag the other day saying that glyphosate, you know, the big weed killer, doesn't cause cancer. Because, you you know, in your secret heart, you always think, you know, big industry, big pharma, big food. They're always out to kill us. Um, So I like it when it punctures something I might secretly have thought was true. Some of the misinformation going around can be just accidental. Some of it's quite... A good example of misinformation or at least shonky, shonky stuff in the media was this week when Public Health England came out with that thing saying everyone should take this heart age. Did you take it? It's a it's tell us it tells you your heart age. But the test itself is kind of really stupid. Basically, if you don't know what your cholesterol level is and you're 30 something and you're a woman and you say you don't know what your cholesterol level is, because why would you? Um, it will send you to your GP. There's loads of... It's just not a very clever test. It's ridiculous. And I'm not interested in, in actual of, health anyway. Yeah. I just want to appear healthy. Yeah, but also lots, so lots of women will probably go to their GPs asking for a cholesterol test. Unnecessarily. on a public... And it's just a massive waste of resource. It, it's good that people are reminded about good health and their heart age, but for Public Health England to come out and promote heart a age. really shonky test that's a bit stupid and doesn't really do the job is all a bit wobbly. So, so yeah, so that was the sort of piece we would do, which is not debunking it, but just pulling out the truth from, you know. What's an ideal story or feature for you? Is it something that's news-led or is it is it reframing, you know, something that's like challenging a traditional notion? I mean, one of the features I like sometimes yeah. is where they say physics thought they understood yeah. you know, Mercury's orbit and now it turns out they don't have a Scooby. I guess the ideal feature is when it's sort of pulling together that everything in it is new I mean that would be your ideal wouldn't it where you're talking about a kind of new frontier where there's just so much new stuff pulling together stuff in a new way and so much new stuff um, is enough happening then? I mean, because if you look at general news, we had the editor yeah. of the BBC's 10 o'clock news on, Paul mm. Royal, recently, and he was saying in the last five years, everything's gone mental. There's been two general elections, two yeah. referenda, Brexit, Trump, blah, blah, blah. You know, do you have enough? Well, in happening? some areas, you wouldn't like, you know, big physics, um, you wouldn't say as a kind of, you know, you don't have to keep on top of that minute by minute. Other areas like tech, AI, uh, it's happening so far, it has happened before you've even reported on it. So there are bits where you can hardly keep up. Um, stuff around... It feels like a lot... I mean, we only... we. I mean, we have news every day, but we only have one mag a week, and it feels like a lot to go at. And there's always more than we can get in, put it that way. Do you have to be quite guarded legally, in a sense? You know, if, you, if you're making claims about, say, pharmacology or something, and you make a, a an error about a you know a particular drug or whatever, the pharma company's all over you, or do they tend to just say, um, it was an honest mistake? Or- all journalists have to know about the law and 
be careful and Isn't thoughtful. It... And if we're running a piece about um, a certain kind of medical monitor being dodgy, you've got to think about, could we be sued? What would it mean? What would we do? So, Is there more to get wrong, though? Because, I mean, in, in the previous example, if the local library burns down, as long as you get the age of the firefighter right, there's not a lot to get wrong, not to diminish that. But with this, yeah. there's, it's quite technical. You I this just having come from more general background to this. This feels less. Less. Oh, I don't know why I'm I'm crossing my fingers and all my toes, (laughs) even though that's not very scientific. What will new scientists look like two years from now? Well, um, spill the beans. Come on. The covers are going to look exactly like this, but obviously our stories will get better and better. But the art's just going to be just as beautiful. I think that in terms of our ambition, I don't know if you've read. Autonomous by Annalee Newitz, who's a fantastic tech and sci-fi writer. Sadly not. And uh, in, I can't remember if it's set in 2030 or 2050. And the hero is a uh, swashbuckling farmer pirate, but she's sort of stealing big farmer to give to the poor. And she gets all her up-to-date news from new scientists in 2030, 2050. So I think that's what we're aiming at, to be a reliable news source in the kind of middle to far future i would say and to do that we need to be more digital that's our future so in terms of the mag i hope that will the art will just get more and more beautiful but i don't see it's it's still going to be in two years an object much like this if that's what you're asking but online i hope we're very much more more in what way well i know we'll be engaging with more people more deeply online so bigger reach bigger audience not necessarily not, not we're not going for reach isn't our strategy, um, but we we want to engage more deeply with sort of readers and potential readers online. And the other thing we do is that we have a live show. So live is also a big thing that's very important to us. Now I'm a 43 year old like old giffer, mm. and um, you know I can remember growing up that there was a weekly science program on BBC One, mm. Tomorrow's World. I can remember when there was a section in the Guardian called Life, which was incredibly well edited. I might yeah. add. And all of these things are kaput now. You know, there seems to be a, a lack of mainstream science journalism. Now, is that how do you view that? Is that a commercial opportunity for you guys to, to step into the void and fill a vacuum? I would hate to contradict you, but there's loads of science stuff out there. Contradicts away, don't worry. And, and, and I think there's much more science and medical environment reporting in the mainstream media than there ever has been before. And it's really good quality, mostly, even if people put out shonky press releases sometimes. Uh, I think it's an improving picture. So we have a role, we have a USP in going into things we would hope better and more deeply and with a certain authority that that we ha- that others maybe don't have. But I think that science reporting in general, especially in the UK, is in fantastic shape. And yet it doesn't seem to have made inroads on issues like climate change, for example. So for, uh, we had Alan Rusbridge, your old boss, yeah. sitting in that chair a while ago, and he was saying how uh, he's d- incredibly dismayed that climate change is one of the most important challenges facing humanity, but it doesn't make the news day to day. And also it's often presented as a matter of opinion. You know, there's a story here on the news and joining us now is a scientist and also some absolute crazy lunatic who thinks climate yeah. change is a hoax. You can't present those two equally. No, you can't. I, I'm obviously not watching that TV channel, and I'll be really depressed. It's called if I Fox did. News. Oh, oh no! Of course, yep. Yeah. Oh, I know. Of course, there's craziness happening. Of course, it must be a terrible time to be a climate scientist with these sort of tornadoes blowing around. 
Of course, there's more and more nonsense. But underlying that, I think that scientific sort of literacy, even if people don't know what that's what it's called, is on the up. I think from all of culture, from news reporting, from films, from TV, people are becoming more savvy about this planet hanging in space and that you can't be heard screaming in space. I think people's knowledge is going up. I think people's knowledge about their health is going up, even though we may not be seeing the evidence for how that's going to impact yet. I do think, if you just if you just talk about UK newspapers, I think mostly they do a great job on science and the environment. There are some of them that maybe don't do a great job on climate, it is true. Um, of course, we're not hanging in space. The mass of the Earth creates a distortion in space-time. <laughs> I could you. go on, but I, I was itching to correct you on some our, science. You're going to be our first trainee. <laughs> and I think someone, one of the listeners will probably email yeah. in to correct me. Mm. Now, uh, tell us about New Scientist Live, because, I mean, you know, referred to it earlier just a moment ago, but um, it seems to be a way that a lot of uh, editorial operations are running, that they, they start to use the, the magazine as the platform to build events on. Yeah. Um, you know, what is the genesis of New Scientist? Live, other than additional revenue and a way to monetize the brand in a different way? Truthfully, I don't know how it began. It's a huge thing. Last year, there were more than 30,000 people it's through incredible. the doors of the Excel Centre. And it's a mixture of um, talks with brilliant people all about masses of ideas. And um, secondly, lots and lots of exhibits. And the learnings so far are that it appeals. We didn't understand really how how much it would appeal even to young children. Um, it's, it's such a kind of diverse range of people turning up. Um, and so it's been such a success. We see it as a big part of our future. And incredible. we're not quite sure how we're going to roll it out or what we'll do yet. Have you been? No. Come and this year. I, 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 literally, the, the, I noticed the three times it's been on, yeah. but every single time oh. something's been on. And I think next year, on year four, I'm going to make sure that it's in okay. my diary months in advance so I can't okay. book something else in. But I'd absolutely love to I attend. I will send you the dates in advance yes, and I will please. invite you as well. Ooh, excellent. And and do you have an events team that put that together or do you, do you control it editorially? I mean, is it a kind of event manifestation of the magazine or, or is it something that a separate team put on control under your guidance maybe we are one team oh i like but that. we do have a um specialist events team who uh report to my boss um and we all work really closely with them a very senior person from editorial is on that team um who's a sort of physics expert and former chief feature editor from the mag so she's gone over so she's putting together the programming you know kind of getting the people all to come along so it's very much all of our project is it so the world's kind of greatest seamless. is it the world's greatest science festival it is because we believe it to be i don't have any sort of double blind trials or anything but we all think it is double blind randomized placebo controlled yeah. trials we don't but we think it is so we're going we're boldly saying so and and is it kind of building up a momentum? Is, is year three a lot better than year one was in terms of the, the calibre of the speakers? The You know, you, mu- you must have learned in terms of how the effective organisation and yes, what to so price that, it out. And... Yeah, stuff has, stuff has evolved in yeah. terms of... Obviously, we want to, you know, we want to build this into a business. 
um, and uh, so stuff progresses and evolves. I'm not quite sure what I can say about it. Well, I'll 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 have one go asking yeah. you then, and you can. I won't do the Paxman thing where yeah. I kind of ask it nine times because obviously lots of other editorial brands have tried lots of different ways to expand. I mean, Cosmopolitan, for example, they actually have created um, a, a, some housing. It's incredible. Yeah. Um, you know, events is obviously is is one, but are there are there going to be other ways to? They call them touch points, don't they? Yeah. The brand, other ways which readers. Can interact with the brand in some other way. I think that we'll be looking at all kinds of digital ways, if that's what you're talking about. New scientists, um, television. We haven't got plans for that at the moment. I mean, the, the thing we've got a great brand. Um, we're quite a small company. We're I can't remember exactly how many of us in a room. Um, it's important that we don't try to do everything and that we just do a few things well. Um, that's really important as well. So we're not going to be doing everything. We're just going to be picking a few things in the future and hoping to do them really well. Does being editor of New Scientist open any doors for you? Like, you know, lots of national newspaper editors have said it's stressful, but they do get the best tickets to the opera and things like that. You know, do you get any advantages whatsoever? I Can you ever drop? been invited into any top laboratories or uh, no. I, I'm, I'm sure it does. I, just because I'm only four months in, I haven't had time to lift my nose up yet, so... But there's certainly no one, no one sends you um, Wimbledon tickets uh, or anything like that. So you could always write to them and so, say, "I'm there to a new scientist. Send court tickets, please." Um, Final. I, I'm not the sort of person who would feel that that was important or would. It's the only thing that matters. That's the only reason I, I do it. I will take Wimbledon tickets. Actually, yeah, it's, it's, it's the only I'd love I do to it. go to Wimbledon. As would I. Um, um, now you're four months in, or five, mm. when this comes out. Yeah. Um, what is as you would expected it to be, and what's raised an eyebrow? What's different to what you'd, you'd expected before you took the post? Well, the culture. There are lots of news teams in the world who genuinely are in it to make the world better. Um, I that hate those the, I hate those people too. And, and 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 that's true at the Guardian. It's true at the Times of London. It's true at the New York Times. It's true. Loads and loads of news organisations that, from the outside, you may not realise it, but actually, everyone in there is mo- is a is a really tedious do-gooder, despicable do-gooders, really, I call them. Yeah, really care about shining light in dark corners, and all of those teams individually think they're special because they really care. But actually, there's lots of people. New scientists are one of those groups of people, and I knew they would be. And you end up with you know, it is people who go to work thinking that they're not just putting out a mag or putting out some news stories, but actually making the world a better place. That's, you know, it's a real privilege for that to be your life. Um, the, the the differences in culture from where I worked before are more subtle than that. Um, one thing I hadn't really got was how apolitical New Scientist is and how important that is. Um, any kind of sort of tipping into any sort of political positioning ends up being quite tainting in a in a world of culture wars gone mad, and we're in this extraordinary position of having somehow managed to dodge the taint of any particular political strand. And so I hope, but there's a real feel in the place of well, we everyone tries to follow the facts, but still there is this taint of politics or this, and and there's something special about new scientists where they really are about not about agendas not about politics not about what you think you know but about really trying to find out what the truth is whatever the you know the cause du jour is or whatever so that's 
that's quite something I hadn't really understood from the outside. And would you ever get political? Like, for example, if there was a general election, even if you wouldn't, say, back a political party, that it would be great to have a, an assessment in detail of the science objectives of each political party, you know, because often the science bit of the manifesto is like a couple of token paragraphs. Yeah, we do that in terms of if there are big events, whether they're political or whatever. Um, so a good example was it's before I started, but it was Brexit and we had a look at the impact on the potential impact on the environment of, of the shift. So, so we're absolutely in the world, but we're not... We're in the world in a way that allows us to just try and report the evidence-based facts without getting into sides or getting into culture wars. I mean, you're the first female editor of New Scientist, but you certainly won't be the last editor. We have a lot of people listening to this podcast who are aspiring journalists and student journalists and so on. Many of them might want to be the uh, either the next but one editor of New Scientist. Mm. What advice would you give to them? They're starting out in their career. They say 20 years from now they want your job. What do they need to do between now and then to sit in your chair? Oh, God, it's really hard. Um, I have an idea it's harder for young journalists today than it was. I'm not really sure how fat-based that is, but... Well, there's fewer it jobs, like, though. It feels like, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, you do have new entrants. You know, Bosley didn't exist back in the day. HuffPo didn't exist in, back in the day. It feels like a harder environment, though, and... I can't remember if it's even up to date, but about one in four people think they might want to go into the media. And so it is harder. What I would say is that you, well, obviously, if you if you want to get into science reporting, I think it would be a good idea to start with a computing engineering or science degree and ideally higher education. Um, the second thing I would say is that you, thanks to the internet, we you you can become a content provider right now. Um, there's no excuse for not having um, a, a podcast, body of a podcast, work, a blog, a or whatever. podcast, say a blog, whatever it is. There's not the the barriers to you may struggle to find an audience, but you can begin to to publish your own work, whatever it is, innovate right now obviously i have um, to say to our listeners if you think of setting up a media podcast yes, don't do that that banned. slot's taken i'll kill you <laughs> um so i would say yeah so so be properly educated i would say in in the area rather than doing some specific science i've got anything wrong about against science communication degree i don't know anything about them but i would say get that body of work behind you there Begin... are science communications degrees i I, I probably aren't there. I, I, I genuinely well, don't we'll know. Well, definitely cool anyway. I'm just saying, one, rather yeah. than doing like a media degree, I would say learn about the area you're going into if you are going into something like science. Not that you definitely need a science degree to be a science correspondent, but it does help. Get a body of content out there, I would say. And then after that, it's about it's about getting jobs, whether it's freelance jobs that get you a foot in the door or some kind of scheme that's up to you but you will have done the best you possibly can by having stuff you can point at there's my blog that's where i write about science every week there's my funny thing there's my podcast we mentioned about diversity earlier do you think women have it harder in science i mean is it an old boys club i think yes i think there's a reason there was the first i don't know what the official name for it was but there was a sort of first gay pride in stem thing the other day um we had a beautiful... the other day that jesus yeah it was that like reason. a month ago God can't remember um there was a special name for the day and that was about celebrating people from you know a diverse range of sexualities in 
science and the fact that still needed suggests that it's not a kind of perfect world of equality. Um, we had a beautiful rainbow cake at work. It was very gorgeous. So I think that there's plenty of evidence that women do have it harder. Uh, I don't doubt as it. they do everywhere in this patriarch. I don't we doubt that in. either. We, <laughs> so, I call it yeah. a malocracy. Yeah, malocracy. <laughs> so yeah, definitely. Yeah. Last couple of questions then. Mm. What do you want your legacy to be as editor? I mean, obviously you're only four months in, which is, I agree it's a ridiculous question. But... I, I hope I leave it happy and thriving, really thriving as a brand in order to, you know, be that great future news source for the robot-loving former pirate in the future for uh, Annalise book. That's what I hope, but I feel like I'm quite a few years away from that touch wood well let's hope so yeah let's hope so last question then what's been the worst day of your career so far in, your, in the whole of your journalism career and to end on a positive note what's also been the best day i was a sort of girl reporter as we were known on the daily mirror years ago and we had to i think it was eric Cla- eric clapton's house there'd been some kind of fire and we all kind of haired down there and Eric Clapton came out on the street and it was like me and the mirror photographer or whatever. And he sort of muttered a few words. No one had their notebooks or whatever. And then off he went. And he said something about, oh, we grabbed his guitars or, or whatever it was. And between us, we all stood around and this is we didn't have any tape recorders. We didn't have phones in those days. So we kind of pieced together what we thought he'd said. And one of the phrases... I thought he'd said, I wasn't really sure. Was like, I'm glad. Anyway, so there's a few little filler things. It was all completely anodyne, completely harmless. I was sort of 25-year-old idiot, you know. The next day, it was the splash on the mirror. And it was just, I'm gutted. And I was pretty sure, <laughs> had he said that? Pretty sure. It was just sort of a filler quote. Anyway, you live and learn. But um, that sounds quite trivial, but it was an embarrassing thing that I didn't tell anyone because, you know, that kind of sort of made up a quote or padded out a quote and we have no been listeners this enormous anyway. enormous front page headline this is the way to bury um, bad news is just yeah. to on this podcast we've got no um, listeners i think that you know you god you know anytime someone tries to sue you that's a really bad day you think you're going to cost your company loads of money that's those are those are those are bad all right that's enough misery then let's, let's cancel the litany of war yeah and, and end on a high note what's been the best day of your career so far I suppose there's different kinds of best, aren't there? It's obviously fantastic to get a new job. It's fantastic just to have, you know, a happy day full of ideas and good colleagues. Um, In terms of sort of raw thrills, then, like most journalists, it's those big news days, which not always good news. (laughs) Well, that's right. Feast and famine is news. uh, But, you know, kind of, which are good to work on at the time. Because it gets the adrenaline going and everyone, adrenaline you get going. in the flow, don't you? Yeah. What's exactly, been the most yeah. memorable story you've worked on? Probably everyone in my generation, the two most memorable are Princess Diana dying. Mm. Um, everyone in my generation remembers where they were when they got the call from the news desk. I, you know, I was in Notting Hill, drove straight to the mirror to man, human, the night desk. Um, and uh, 9-11, for, again, where... Everyone remembers, you know, exactly where they were, what the, what was happening when they got back to the newsroom. Those are the two hugest stories. Not in sort of, you know, kind of the future humanity way, but in terms of sort of visceral moments in your career. Emily Wilson, editor of my favourite magazine ever, New Scientist. I've really enjoyed this. Thank you ever so much for your time. Thank you. 
Right Angles Podcast in association with Big Things Media.